0: Hi everyone, my name is Jack and this is the third episode of Stories, where we take individual experiences and share them with a wider audience. I'm Louise, I'm uh, currently in Paris, and yeah, we're really excited to bring you Louis' story today. In last week's episode, Louis told us about his time growing up during war, and today he's going to tell us about being in the U.S. Air Force and his experience protesting the Vietnam War. Yeah, so after I graduated medical school, I was an intern in, in San Francisco. And that time there were a lot of big anti war demonstrations. Even when I was a senior in medical school, there was a, in 1965, there was a big demonstration at the Pentagon. I think it was the first big anti war one. And I went. And at that time, I was, forget my title. In the, I had a military title. I guess I was on inactive duty or something. I, I had been, uh, I, had, I was in the military. I had a choice of either being drafted when I graduated or the putting off going in the military till after I had specialty training, which would be three or four years. I did that. And so they gave me uh, a rank, but it was not active. I forget the criteria of it now that I'm, you know, it's interesting because when I went to that demonstration in Washington, there were a lot of uh, military people and police. I mean, I didn't see anything bad happening, but some bad things did happen. I read about tear gas and I was a little afraid of being stopped by the police because I had this military rank and I was afraid I could really get in trouble for being there, which I, probably wouldn't have. But anyway, and then when I was in San Francisco, I was in some anti-war demonstrations, uh, including a very, very big one that went from Berkeley down toward Oakland, a famous one, because it was attacked by the Hells Angels uh, on the way. You know, I was, I didn't see it personally. It seemed like very festive March, you know, But there was some violence in it. Anyway, so then after I finished all my training, so then I was back in Manhattan for three years for my psychiatric training. I wasn't, I don't think I was really very involved in any particular activities. But I'm not too, you know, I think uh, that's when I remember seeing Malcolm X. Maybe it was before that time. There was a lot going on in the environment then, a lot of turmoil. The war was growing bigger, and there was more. It was like it has it is now. I mean, the country was very polarized. People don't realize how split it was about Vietnam and uh, how many people supported the war and considered people who were opposed to it to be traitors, you know. So I, I went into the military. I had the choice of going to Canada and trying to leave the country. I didn't want to do that. I was married then. So anyway, uh, I had basic training. And then we came to, I was assigned to an Air Force Base hospital in Ohio, in Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is a big, very big Air Force Base, or it was. Uh, in the It was the base of the Strategic Air Command. Yeah, so I was definitely... Uh, against the war very much. And I joined, there was a group of a movement of officers called the Concerned Officers Movement Against the War. So I joined that group and I, I, I talked to a lot of people about it. You know, it, it didn't involve a lot. There were groups of enlisted men or people who were not officers who were anti-war and they sometimes wanted to talk to officers to support get support. And then, uh, so sometime that year, that first year, I was on a radio program about the war. And the radio station was an Antioch College radio station, W-Y-S-O. And they were definitely a more left-wing anti-war station. I, I had some theories about the meaning of the war for soldiers and I wrote a couple articles about it, and I felt, you know, I was very aware that I was working for the Air Force, but I was also working for patients, and sometimes there was a conflict between those two obligations, you know, especially if the patients didn't want to go to war. Sometimes I saw patients who were sent to a psychiatric hospital because they had protested against the war. That happened a lot back then. It's a little like in Russia, you know, where if you're the center, you can get put in psychiatric hospital. A lot worse in Russia, of course, no comparison. Uh, but sometimes they use that to get rid of people from the military. So they'd send them to a psychiatric hospital, and uh, they'd get some diagnosis, and then the person would be discharged on a medical discharge. No hassle, you know. That was one way they evo- they got rid of dissenters. Yeah, uh, colleagues of mine saw this fairly often, you know, I mean, pretty that regularly. To I mean, you know, it wasn't every Did day. you see this often? And I also testified in court-martials, which is more serious. That's where somebody gets potential criminal penal- penalties against them for not obeying orders. And one of them involved a helicopter pilot who was flying a helicopter in Vietnam, and he refused to go back after he came home on leave he refused to go back to duty because he didn't like what he saw and what he had to do. So I remember his case very vividly. Uh, and he was court-martialed and he was convicted. I think they gave him a light penalty, but he was, he got a dishonorable discharge, which I don't know what finally happened to him, but that's not a good thing to have. Anyway. So, and I remember, I don't know. I remember these court-martials and, uh, And I remember during the court-martial, who was in another base, so they'd fly me there, and I'd get put up in the officer's quarters, and then I'd go to dinner with people who uh, were involved in the trial, or who were, you know, and they were always extremely friendly. I mean, in general, the Air Force officers were very friendly to me, and a lot of them were against the war. When you talk to them privately, although they would do their duty, you know, they would never disobey an order. So it was a strange experience for me because I was like an insider and an outsider at the same time. So then I was invited to be on this radio panel and uh, I participated. And I don't even remember what I said particularly. It wasn't going to be too shocking. But a little after that, I was called in to the base commander's office and he said he was going to have a talk with me because he got a report that I had appeared on a radio show. And he asked me to tell him what that was about and why I did it. And uh, so I told him about it. And he listened to me. And basically, he was polite. And basically what he said was, well, you're allowed to speak up your opinions. You're not allowed to do it in uniform. If you weren't in uniform when you did this, that's fine. And, but if you were in uniform or if you violated any of the other rules about it, you could be in some trouble. But right now, you know, just be careful. That was all. So that was that. But it was like a little warning kind of thing, made me anxious. And then in, uh, in May 70, that was the Kent State shooting. And that really uh, upset me and a lot of other people a great deal. I overheard people talking about it in the uh, market, the commissary market at the Air Force Base. And I heard these women talking, saying, those kids deserved it. They were asking for it. I was really shocked. But um, I began to feel more of this polarization. Anyway, uh, so I was very aware of being in this military world there, at the same time, you know, being very opposed to it even though they were treating me very well, you know. Would you mind just giving a little background on the Kent State shootings? Well, there were student uh, uh, rallies in a lot of campuses. And they mostly had to do with people afraid of being drafted when they were graduating. And also there were people that were morally opposed to the war. And they had a big such demonstration at Kent State. But some idiot called out the National Guard to go on campus to disperse this rally. And the National Guard came armed, and that at a certain point. So the demonstrators were very agitated. They were throwing rocks, I mean, shouting. What happened was they refused to disperse. And the National Guard opened fire on them. And several teenagers were were murdered, you know. And the famous song by Crosby Stills and Nash, you know, Four Dead in Ohio, you know, very great song. It's like an anthem. Heard that everywhere then, you know, you know, and I did, I did sometimes give advice to put people on military people and about how to get out of the military. But I didn't, I didn't do a heck of a lot, really. Yeah. um, So in the spring of 71, I got invited to participate in a big anti-war rally in Dayton, Ohio. And I gave this speech about why I thought it was important to oppose the war and what I perceived in the military's attitudes about it. You know, it was a pretty bland speech as such things go. I was not exactly a fiery agitator. After the speech, these guys came up to me. One of them took my picture and somebody was asking me questions. Where was I stationed? How long had I been in the military? Uh, what groups did I belong to, was I in any anti-war groups? And I said, I'm in the uh, concerned officers movement. I didn't, you know, I didn't lie about anything. I didn't have anything to lie about. But after, so the other, so, but by a strange irony of fate, the next day I had to go to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to take a national board exam to be qualified as a physician, to be licensed. And um, so I had to drive from where we were in Dayton, Ohio, to Pittsburgh. It's a pretty long ride. I don't know what it was, four or five hours. And as I was driving, I started to think about these people that had taken my picture and asked me all these questions. And I started to get really paranoid, like uh, maybe I'm really in trouble. What are they going to do to me? Uh, what could come out of this? I got very anxious. And I spent the whole drive trying to work it through in my mind, you know, uh, what could happen to me. And uh, really, I didn't have any specific ideas. They could have tried to court-martial me. They could have tried all kinds of things. But realistically, I hadn't really broken any laws, I don't think. But I'm pretty sure I didn't. Do you think maybe there were, I mean, there were clearly unspoken rules of what could and could not be done? As you mentioned earlier, um, since some had, you know, medical s- statements made about them so they could not work anymore and stuff like that, but were you, did you have any fear that that could happen to you? If they had wanted to, they could have tried to get rid of me. But my term was almost done, I only had a few, few more months. And I, why would they go to all that trouble? I mean, you know, it would have been legal trouble for them, but, um, but if they really wanted to get me, there are things they could have done, so I had a kernel of truth to my fear, you know, and also it was in this climate nationally where there were a lot of people being arrested. During that period, I lived near the Antioch College campus, you know, and then the base was about. I don't know ten miles away. Uh, so I lived in a civilian town that was very progressive, and then I'd go to the base, which, where, as I say, the people I worked with mostly were, you know, against the war. But I was in a base that was a, on a war footing, and I and I had to do things, you know, as a as part of my job that were very militaristic. You know, every once in a while. The, the senior medical officers or the junior medical officers, the senior ones would have been the people who were higher ranking. We had to serve as the on-duty physician, but in case of uh, nuclear emergencies, because our base had nuclear bombers that were in the air. There were always uh, B-52s, I believe, uh, that carried nuclear weapons in the air. always. Uh, the, at that period. And so in case of a war, there would already be planes in the air that had nuclear weapons that could strike to deter a Russian attack, which people were afraid of, some people were afraid of. Anyway, uh, so uh, sometimes a plane that carried nuclear weapons would have to make an emergency landing for an engine problem or something. And it happened to me twice, I think. And so. I would have to go out in this ambulance to the airfield air and I'd go with a sergeant and he would just tell me what to do and I would just be there. So the idea was if there was if the plane crashed, if nuclear material spread into the air, there were things we immediately had to do and I being the one in charge would be the one having to send out the notification. Of course I had no idea what to do but this this master sergeant would say, "Don't worry, Doc. I'll tell you what to do. I'll walk you through it." And uh, luckily, it never happened. They, they called these planes that had something the matter a "broken arrow." So I'd get I'd get a call. There's a broken arrow. Report to so and so right away. You know. So it was very scary, but it was me. It made me feel part. You know, part of it in a way that both felt good and bad. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah, this was, so that was quite an intense experience for me, you know. And so then I, I, you know, I had to go and take this exam. I think the exam was the next morning. I arrived at the hotel in Pittsburgh, and I went to the restaurant. I had all my notes with me to, to review that night for the exam. But instead, I drank a whole bottle of wine at dinner, and I went back to the room, and I fell asleep, which was a smart thing to do. And I slept through the whole night. Then I woke up early, early. And I went to the exam. And I did pass the exam, which I didn't know right away that I passed it, because they don't tell you for a little while. But but anyway, I didn't think I did great. But I passed it. You know, that was um, sometime in the late spring. And then that summer, there was a convention of the American Psychiatric Association in Washington, D.C., and I went to that, and I, I organized a meeting about military psychiatry there. And uh, and we had a panel. We had Robert Lifton was on my panel. Was pretty, that was pretty prestigious, you know. And I also went with a delegation to the attorney general's office. And, I mean, I, you know, we had a number of people who were Act of while we were in Washington going to make ourselves heard. And then it was shortly after that that I um I got discharged. I mean, right before I got discharged, about a month before, I got promoted. Basically, I went to the person in the administration. I said, Why, why did this happen? And he said, it's just routine. You know, they're hoping that if you decide to stay in for another couple of years, you'll get a bit much higher salary, maybe. They're trying to get people to stay in. That's all it means. And I didn't want to stay in, but I had to go to the ceremony to get promoted. It seemed very ironic. And uh, that was the end. And I was done being in the military. So I had a chance to speak up a little and do my thing, but not too much. I mean, I had a young child, a baby. I mean, I was pretty busy trying to get my life in order. At one time, I had a file with tons of correspondence and Brochures and posters and leaflets. I don't. I I can't find it. I may have thrown it away some point along the way. Too bad, you know. Anyway, so that's kind of my my uh, you know sort of being on the fringe of what was happening in the United States. The big the big powerful currents that were traversing the country then, and uh, the splits that were, I would say. Not quite as bad as now and that maybe it's a little worse now. So that's my, uh, my, my contact with my military life contact. And then, of course, uh, you know, it was shortly after that that they did away with the draft in the United States. Because before that, I used to counsel lots of people who wanted to know how to talk to the military doctors to be disqualified from being drafted. I remember when I was in basic training, which was kind of fun in a way, but they had this indoctrination thing where they'd have these people who were, you know, uh, how they were selected, but they were indoctrinating us about the mission of the military and the war. And one of them, I remember, started out this talk. There were maybe 30 of us in the room. So he said, uh, your ancestors came to America. I guess he was talking about the idea of what America stood for. And he said, why did your ancestors come to America? And I said, to escape automatic uh, enlistment, conscription. I said, my ancestors came to avoid conscription, <laughs> which was true. Because uh, in, in Russia, I mean, uh, you know, that was a re- the reason that a lot of Jews left at the time that my family left was because of riots against Jews and because of conscription into the Tsarist army. That was true. Everybody laughed. Everybody thought that was a really good answer. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Well, you're welcome. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, We have a Instagram up and running. You can follow it at StoriesPod spelled as it sounds on Instagram. We'll be posting photos of each individual story there uh, and little updates as we go. As always, thank you Dimitri for the music and we'll see you next time.